Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 342. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. It's good to see you on this uh, lovely evening. A lovely summer night. Summer nights. All right, on today's summer night show, we've got a lot of great questions. First, should you throw away products because a beauty product app told you to? Are lip primers just chapstick, or are they doing something more? Does sunscreen break down if it's heated too much? What claims are true about ethnic hair care? And does that lamellar technology found in Wonder Water really work for hair? But first, some of our famous chit-chat. Valerie, how you been? I've been good keeping busy. You know, I went to the dentist the other day. And I've never had an adult cavity in my life, really? but the technician did tell me I need to floss first. She can tell I'm flossing and doing a good job, but she says I need to do it first. And I didn't want to challenge her on this because you and I have been here quite a bit. Sure. Uh, I didn't ask her for the peer-reviewed literature for proof, Sure. Uh, but I just said, okay. And I, you know what? I said, I'll give it a try. So I've been flossing first for the last few days. Now I am I have been on team philosophers, right? Yeah. Although I I probably concur with you. I don't think there's a study that's that I mean this seems like a pretty easy study you could do, right? Just I actually think there was a study that said there was no difference. Right. Well, it's hard to prove a negative, right? <laughs> I think if you're just flossing versus no flossing, it doesn't really matter when you do it, there's gonna be a huge difference. Yeah. Trying to tease out a difference between whether you do it before brushing or after, that's a much harder ask. Well, right? you'd have to do half your mouth. Right. Half your mouth. Huh. Yeah. You could do that. And the last time I got my teeth cleaned, which was uh, six months ago, I go every six months, the technician, different one, said it doesn't matter when you floss as long as you do it any time of day. And in fact, she keeps floss in her car and she'll do it in the car and the whole time she was cleaning my teeth i was like i wonder how much plaque is on the inside of her windshield (laughs) that is a good question it's probably just bits of food on the windshield (laughs) yeah anyway so that's what i've been up to well you know about bits of food i've been scraping them off the uh floor of the room where i had the porch kittens okay how are they doing they are all adopted away. Oh, wow. That's great to hear. Yeah, my cousin took little Leonardo, and then my neighbors took Donatello and Raphael. And wow. then I took the little smidgy Michelangelo, who didn't get picked because, you know, she she used her claws a little bit more than the other ones. But she was so sweet. She was like sitting in my lap and purring when it was just her for one day. Oh, you know, ah, so friendly. And Michelangelo was always the cool one. I can't believe no one picked her. 
Well, she was the one most likely to use her nails to climb up your leg. So. Yeah, yeah, so, that's true. That's, you know, <laughs> when you got three little black kittens, you know. But I'm sure she's going to find a great home at the shelter that I took her to. She is so friendly. Uh, the people were gushing about her there. So I think uh, Project Save Porch Kittens uh, success this time. Oh, that's great. Four cats kept off the streets. <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, just one other thing that we had last week. We did a reef safe sunscreen debate. Really? And I actually, we're going to be talking about sunscreen in our upcoming segment. So yeah, let's let's talk about this. Um, I'm part of the IFSCC, which is the International Federation of Society of Cosmetic Chemists, and we host these debates on topics which I don't know. I guess I find them debate worthy because. What I what I worry is that in our industry, some of the newer chemists or people who are just getting into the industry, they're heavily influenced by the marketing of our industry. And sometimes they don't they don't seem suitably scientifically skeptical, right? At least in my view. Yeah, I mean being cynical is my best quality and my worst quality at the same time. It's a fabulous quality for a scientist. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, so I like to have these debates on topic. We had one on clean beauty. We had one on natural products. And so we had this reef safe one because to me, this seems like more of a marketing position than it does like a, a serious scientific concern. What What do you think? Well, I think the data is still out. I think there's a lot of information that will say sunscreens are a problem for reefs. And then there's a lot of information that points to them not being an issue. So I think it's really too premature. We don't know enough or we don't have the right perfect storm of experimental protocol to really determine what's an issue. Right. That is one of the big challenges that we don't have a real definition for reef safe. And so it does become mostly a marketing position. Um, and I guess one of the issues I have is it's just, it seems like a, a free from thing where people will vilify one type of sunscreen and they say another one is safe, but they don't really know that the other one is safe. They're just assuming that, oh, if I don't use the one that we think is bad, then it's reef safe. But they've never done the testing to demonstrate that because nobody has defined what is reef safe. Exactly. And some brands have even made the reef safe claim and actually retracted it from their marketing literature afterwards. So I think it was probably something hot to jump on for some time. And now people are really digging into the truth of it. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But one thing that I think is for certain, while it doesn't seem like it's a huge issue, or at least I don't think it seems as a huge issue, it's not a non-issue because the conclusion of, say, like the National Science Association who, who did a big study on it, they said, oh, we need to look at this some more. I agree. Well, it was a good debate, and uh, we, the scientists concluded, I think, more, there were more people that believed that it was really not as big an issue and more of a marketing position, but uh, uh, that's that's where we ended up. All right, we ready for some beauty science news? Speaking of sunscreens, 
AOC thinks you deserve a better sunscreen? Yeah, I saw this earlier this week. Uh, AOC, if you're not from the U.S., is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We call her AOC for short. Posted a video to Instagram with Do Skincare founder Charlotte Palermino. Maybe you also follow her on Instagram. She's a, a beauty communicator. And they basically think the U.S. is falling short on the SPF front. AOC went to South Korea and said it was so clear how far advanced the rest of the world is on sunscreen and the United States deserves better. So they like how they feel better, they apply better, that sort of stuff? Well, we're not really clear. Um, All right. You know, no one has really said... uh, what is better about them. Typically they cite that the number of filters that are available uh, are far more in other geographies and they don't really go into why that's an issue. I think there's probably more UVA filters in the rest of the world, but I, you know, I don't recall that being a part of the conversation. Uh, and they say, well, you know, sunscreens are pretty regulated in the U.S., but perhaps they're too regulated because it adds a ton of regulations to the process. All this testing and clinical studies uh, we have to do because in the United States, sunscreens are drugs. So it adds a lot of bureaucracy cost, and it just prevents us from not having enough uh, filters. Well, this seems like one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, the U.S. is always vilified as saying, oh, we don't regulate things enough. And now they're saying, oh, you regulate things too much. (laughs) Yeah. And for something that's kind of in the hot seat, uh, you know, sunscreen filters are pretty studied for being in our bloodstream. And we want to make sure that they can be excreted in the urine. You would want all of this testing um, on the product to make sure that it's uh, safe for your organs. And in uh, one person's story, uh, sunscreens don't go through a formal drug approval process in Korea. So which one is it? Do we want these sunscreens rushed to market and then all of these studies later come out about how they're not great for you, they penetrate into the blood, blah, blah, blah. Or uh, do we want this slow process and have a limited set of filters? It's a bit of a conundrum. I mean, we are pretty slow in approving new things that have been approved other places on the planet. It's a little on the slow side. I will agree. It's pretty slow. On the other hand, it's, there are lots of sunscreens on the market, right? And they work. And they work. <laughs> so, I mean, could they work better and feel more aesthetically better? I like Because I don't think, like the South Korean ones don't work better as far as protecting your skin. I think they work better in terms of aesthetics. That's so possible. It feels nicer. Maybe it leaves less of a cast or whatever on the skin. Uh, but as far as working, the, the stuff you can get in the U.S. works just as well as uh, things you find other places in the world. Is it possible this is a triple-edged sword, not a double-edged sword? Because one of the other complaints that people have about sunscreens is they don't like the chemical sunscreens they want the physical sunscreens and there's not other physical sunscreens in korea they're chemical sunscreens right so right that's it's just possible more we chemicals right <laughs> yeah we wouldn't even please that segment of the population no it's 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 more chemicals that haven't been studied either you know <laughs> like the newer they are the, the less uh, data we have behind them and, and studying it and are those other ones are those reef safe you know like, I don't know. Yeah. 
you can't win. The point of this story is no one can win. It is interesting, though, to see a U.S. government representative uh, weighing in on regulations here. And and we did pass a law, Obama passed a law some years ago trying to update the sunscreen stuff and get things approved faster. And that has had exactly no impact because nothing's <laughs> been approved. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, there does need to be action for sure. It, it certainly moves slower. All right. Well, stay tuned and we'll, we'll report on that if uh, any new sunscreen regulations come out. Hey, Valerie, we, we're getting lit up on listener feedback with uh, that Loom deodorant. <laughs> now, you mentioned it a few episodes back yeah. and about the crazy commercials. Yeah. But Sandy says that... Uh, She's thrilled with her Loom deodorant, and it lives up to its promises. While the cream has an odd smell, the stick doesn't, so there you go. Um, and she was wondering, she asked Loom about that, but did not get any response. I, I didn't see the differences between the cream and the stick, um, but I guess presumably you don't, the, the stick is not going to smell as much because solids really don't, uh, give off as much odor as, say, a liquid or an emulsion yeah, like that. True. So it's not surprising to me that that's the you case. You typically need more uh, fragrance in them to get some kind of effect. Right, exactly. So she says, I personally love the lasting effect and only need to apply it every three days. Not affiliated with Loom, but she highly recommends it and says, Valerie, you got to give it a shot. Every three days, Valerie. So here's the deal. I did get it. Yeah. Oh, you did. Get <laughs> out did. of here. I did. Yeah. So, you know, we've had people write in the commercials drive me nuts. That lady drives me nuts. I just don't think it's necessary to say boobs and butt cracks on TV and actually show uh, sure. a swiping motion with the tube. It just they look a little low budget. It bothers me. So anyway, sure. after all of our fans have written us about this, I said, I'm, I'm going to get it and try it. And also, I wanted to see what this odor was that some of our other uh -huh. listeners have smelled. And I have to report, uh, I don't like saying this, but it works. Whoa. <laughs> I don't like admitting that about Loom. I don't. So it's like a three, so is a, it's a deodorant, not an antiperspirant, right? Correct. And so... As far as working, that means it works to to control odor, but not control perspiration. Yeah, but I do I do think it keeps you a little dry because both formulations have cornstarch in them and tapioca starch. Okay. So I think they they keep you a little dry feeling with that. But there is one caveat I have to have to make, Perry. So it works, but I was thrown off a little bit. Uh, first and foremost, if you're going to pick up this Loom deodorant and try it, I do not recommend getting toasted coconut. It is awful. Well, it sounds tasty, but I guess you don't I thought eat it would your... sound good, too. I was going to get unscented, and then toasted coconut popped up. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. You know, let me give that a try. First of all, the coconut smell burned. And secondly... Ouch. There's this strange note to it. it. I don't know if it's like the saltiness, but it almost smells like I had body odor to start with. I put it on oh. and even Mr. Cosmetic Chemist was like, you don't smell right. And sh I was like, I know. Do I smell like body odor already? 
And uh, no, it was the toasted coconut. And it went away on day two and a half. Two. So it was like halfway. Like after a day and a half, I was headed into day two. The body odor essence from the toasted coconut went away. And now, now I don't smell at all. You know, that is an interesting strategy for a deodorant. It's like... It's the B.O. deodorant. You make yourself smell like B.O. and then it covers up your natural B.O. You get used to it. It levels out, right? Maybe (laughs) that's what's happening. So anyway, I didn't get any weird odor and it was both products. So it wasn't anything to do with the cream. Uh, You know, part of me is like, I should try unscented, but I have a a stick and a tube now. So I kind of have a lot to go through and you only need it every three days. So I don't think I'll be plowing through it anytime soon. It's going to take a while. You know, I went to uh, Costco about three years ago, and I got, like, a packet of, like, six deodorants. Like, I just use Speed Stick or whatever. And I, I still haven't used them up in, like, three years. Yeah, I'm, like, the worst deodorant <laughs> consumer. But when it comes to Loom, it does work. Well, how does the company make money in deodorants when you have people buying them, like, I don't know, two or three sticks a year? <laughs> I mean that's not a lot of that's you not have to a lot count on a lot of people buying these sticks, and it's not like you, you lose them, you know, because you keep them in in one right. spot in your bathroom. Exactly. It's not like you know. I hate when you when you get to the bottom of the stick, and who does this? Uh, uh, speed stick might do it, but I I know um, Old Spice does it. They have a blue product, and then the bottom plastic they have is blue. So when you get all the way down to the bottom, you know, the last few days, I'm just like rubbing the plastic, plastic on yeah. my body. And I, I don't even know I'm out. That seems like a bad, a bad product design. If anyone from Old Spice is listening, fix that immediately because we hate <laughs> it. Uh, but you know what we don't hate? Answering questions. Let's get to those. Laura from Patreon says, Hi, Valerie and Perry. Thank you for your podcast and sharing your expertise, knowledge with us all. I have a friend that swears by the Yucca app. It's an app that you scan a barcode and it tells you all the harmful chemicals in any type of product. They claim they are independent, but they do charge a membership fee. They rate food, personal care products, and cosmetics. My friend has discarded dozens of products she has and now only purchases safe products based on the Yucca app. As a longtime Beauty Brains listener, my hunch is this is complete nonsense, and I'm curious if you're able to weigh in. Assuming the Yucca app is complete malarkey, how are they able to get away with publishing fake information? Well, that's an excellent question. Now, before we got this question, I... I think I probably heard of the Yuka app, but I never really looked at it. We have a friend who has it downloaded, so I'm oh, okay. well aware of it. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, I went and uh, downloaded it myself so I could take a look. And then I went in my bathroom and I scanned my first product. Your first and only product. Uh, well, I went into my wife's bathroom, so <laughs> she she has more products than me. All right. And the first product that I scanned, the Foaming hand soap coconut water from the brand Method. Oh, that's a great one. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, it's not, Valerie. It's a. Uh, it's rated ten out of a hundred, and it says bad. Is now is one good or a hundred good? A hundred is good. So they've rated that a ten. They rated it a ten. Well, I'd like to disagree. 
<laughs> well, I will tell you what what their rating what what killed it in their ratings is it uses the preservative methyl isothiazolinone and it uses sodium lauryl sulfate which they say is a moderate risk. They say the methyl isothiazolinone is uh, hazardous. Warning, warning, warning. Warning. So it's it's <laughs> that. And then they say cocobitalprobobetane has a low risk, but it's not no risk. And then the no risk stuff like water, glycerin, aloe, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to agree water is a risk. Uh, they say no risk for water. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, they yeah. should check no. out my September issue of Happy Magazine where I talk about... Oh. Hard water. Oh, and its effect on water. skin. Yeah. How about that? How about that, Yuka? <laughs> well, they do recommend the 18 in 1 hemp pure Castile liquid soap from Dr. Bronner's. They give that a 93 out of 100. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so what's going on here? Now, First of all, the the issue that I have with this is it's the same issue that I have with the Skin Deep database, for example. Whereas they just they rate things uh, on this stupid scale, it doesn't take into account a hugely important piece, and that is the amount of exposure. They say methyl isothiazolinone, it's used at a tiny amount in cosmetics to get a huge effect as, as a preservative zero effect. zero something. Yeah, zero zero one five percent So it's very tiny percent. It's very effective. And most importantly, the SCCS and the, um, the CIR in the United States have said it is safe to use in cosmetics at the prescribed levels. So when you say, "Oh, well, it's just hazardous," that's that's disingenuous. That's not that's not that's not right. You know that, the way you the way they rate that. They say sodium lauryl sulfate is a moderate risk. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the for, it's not taking into account the overall formulation. Uh, foaming hand right. washes are literally probably 90 to 95% water. So you barely right. have any surfactant in here. You barely that have too. anything in here. So to say that there's a moderate risk with using it, I would disagree. A foaming hand wash actually is way more gentle because it has less solids, less active matter than a gel hand wash, let's say. Yeah, so it's it's so I don't agree with their rating system. Now, the other thing I looked at is you can go to the Yuka website and you could look at like who put this all together. And you would think, well, uh, they must have a whole legion of scientists behind this. Uh, there is a, actually the company lists about uh, 12 people in the company. Um, but they do list, most people are customer service, but they do list one person as a toxicologist. Uh, she was formerly a... Uh, Formerly, she was a roller derby uh, person, and then she became a toxicologist, I guess. Uh, yeah, former roller derby player, even participated in 2017 championships. Wow, a so champion. She's the one toxicologist on the staff of, uh, you know, 12 or 16 people. 12 people, looks like. So, uh, I guess, and I'm, sh- and I'm sure she does a fine job as a toxicologist. And in fact, I looked at the information that they share. So 
when they rate methyl isothiazolinone as a hazard, then you can look at the info, and it says, you know, as of February 2017, it's prohibitive on leave-in products. They're missing the part where it's acceptable on rinse-off products, which is what this is. Um, and they say 10% of the population uh, has the potential to be uh, allergic to it, which is true. That's one of the issues with it. But so 90, for 90% of people, it's perfectly fine to use. Um, so that's a little uh, misleading, I would say. I don't like that they charge a membership fee. I mean, I know they have to monetize the app somehow, but I I feel uncomfortable with that because at the end of the day, their incentive is to make you feel like you're being kept safer uh, from their app. It's the same premise of funding the EWG, except that's donation-based versus a required membership fee. So I, I don't I don't like that. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a money-making uh, machine, and people have to make money, sure, versus yeah, sure. something that's really uh, some charitable concept to help keep people safe. You could see, though, I, I personally don't think that's as bad because you could see if it was funded by advertising or by the brands, uh, maybe they wouldn't be as unbiased. So Maybe the brands have to the- pay to be a part of this, so the recommended brands. No, no, they they specifically say they don't take money from brands. Okay. So just and, consumers. Right, just consumers. Um, and I don't believe they take affiliate money, which is one of the things that like the Environmental Working Group will do. They'll say, Oh, this is a this is a badly rated product, but here's our Amazon link, and if you click through there and buy it there, uh, uh we get a commission on that. <laughs> oh, so, that I don't like. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's how the EWG does it. But so they don't do that. I'm well, okay with the prescription prescription thing, even I if it's not find... uh, reliable or accurate information. Yeah, that's that's. I would say that is the case. I mean, I think it's patently false to say that method foaming coconut soap water is a ten, uh, a 10 out of a hundred versus the Bronner's Castile soap a ninety three. That is that is a that is false information. That is or that's a. I, I guess it's not false. It's it's just an opinion, so it's not false. I think it's a it's a wrong opinion. It's it's completely wrong. It's misleading so, and it's not based yeah. on on great information. I think method is a ten out of a ten. Yeah, ten being the best. <laughs> well, now uh, one of the questions that she did ask was. Uh, assuming the Yucca app is complete malarkey, how are they able to get away with publishing fake information like this? I will say that uh, I don't think it's complete malarkey. They do reference the CIR, the SCCS. I think but the they only give one part, side of the story. Right, that's the malarkey part is their rating piece. But they base their opinions uh, well on a misreading of information too. So. <laughs> So, um, so I don't think it, I, I wouldn't say it's complete malarkey, but even if it were complete malarkey, uh, at least in the United States, you're free to like make your app and say whatever lie you want. And if you get people to believe it, there is, <laughs> there's no law against doing that, you know? That's true. It's not so. illegal. It just ain't right. <laughs> yeah. And I think it is not right to have people have one toxicologist out of your whole staff there's no way she's reviewed all of these chemicals by the way there are thousands of chemicals you have one person 
doing this, and then the rest of the app. What are the other twelve people doing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Keeping the app going. Yeah. All right, so that's our that's that's my thoughts on that. Valerie's thoughts on that, and now let's move on to the next question. This one comes to us from Amanda, another one of our patrons. Hey, if you want to support the show and get your question a higher priority than the rest, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe at any level. We also are putting together transcripts of all the shows for patrons only. All right, Amanda wants to say, do lip primers work or are they just chapstick? Hi, Beauty Brands. I've been having an eczema flare-up on my lips. I've been researching lip primers, hoping that I can create a barrier between the skin and lip products. I want to wear lipstick for a party coming up. People complain on Reddit that lip primers are the same as chapstick. How do these lip primers work, and will they be functionally different from a chapstick or a lip balm? I'm considering the Anastasia Lip Primer because it doesn't appear to have fragrance, and if the goal is to create a barrier on the lips, would Petrolatum be the best? I've been using... Avena Syphila Restorative Lip Cream to soothe my lips. Will this do the job? Thank you so much, Perry and Valerie. Do you use these uh, lip primers? I don't because I don't really like them. To me, a lip primer is something that you put on when you want to fill in the cracks on your lips, maybe prevent your lipstick or lip gloss that you're going to apply above it from bleeding and feathering out onto your skin. So I often find that they really serve that purpose and aren't necessarily meant to nourish or soothe or treat your lips. So Amanda does say she wants to wear lipstick for a party coming up, but I just have a hard time believing that if you had a lip balm you really love to make your lips feel good, that would work just fine. I think you know, lip primers are kind of expensive. It's like buying a lipstick and you really would only use it when you're wearing a lipstick over it. And so if you have a yeah. good lip balm, I think it would serve the same purpose. I mean, there are similar components. Typically, lip primers are made from synthetic esters, silicas, and waxes to help give it structure and uh, prevent it from migrating on your lips. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Anastasia lip primer is. Right. I know like phenol trimethicone is a pretty common ingredient, maybe microcrystalline wax. So yeah, I think they work. Now, do they work better than petrolatum, just petrolatum? They they probably have about the same function, I would think, right? From an emolliency perspective, for sure. Uh, she mentioned she's wearing the Avene Kekal Fat. I don't know how to say that. I'm sorry. Lips ah. restorative lip cream. And this actually looks like a very nice product, very nourishing. It does have mineral oil in it, which is like liquid petrolatum, I guess. Right, right. Uh, and it has beeswax to help it stay put. I think this is actually a very beautiful lip treatment. Um, but what is nice about the Anastasia product is it's going to prevent migration. If you just put petrolatum on your lips... Uh, you might get bleeding of your, your product onto your skin. So I probably wouldn't put that under lipstick. Now, you might be able to do it with some success. Maybe some people do, but right. I probably would say like not the best thing. Uh, but as far as treatment goes, if you're having an eczema flare-up, dry lips, maybe you try to layer all three, something like that. Yeah, I, mean, I think 
of those things, the uh, petrolatum is going to be is going to feel the best for mm-hmm. uh, an eczema flare up. Uh, but for the priming the lips before a product, it I think you'd have a, having a nice silicone film as your lowest layer is probably going to be the most effective because you're not going to necessarily get bleeding of your color either. Exactly. So, Amanda, I would actually try all all of these options before your party. Even if you're home alone, yeah. put it on, see what happens, talk, lick your lips, drink something, see how it holds up. It's an experiment. Now, do you recommend that she does it like one at a time, take it off one at a time, or just do her lips in thirds? So like one third of the lip is... <laughs> well, I would do I would do half of the lip, not meaning like upper, uh, but I would sure. do like, you know, laterally like half just the lipstick and the other half, your Avene product, see how that works. And then the next day, try half just the lipstick, half the petrolatum, and then um, see if those work before buying and diving into that Anastasia lip primer. There we go. Solve the problem with science. Okay. Hey, we've got an audio question. This one comes from way back, coming to us from Ashley. Hi, Perry and Valerie. This is Ashley from Austin. I'm a black woman who recently made the decision to end a lifetime of hair relaxing and go natural. Since making this leap, though, I found myself in a world dominated by brands, influencers, and other people with natural hair spreading a dizzying amount of competing information, often with no sign of scientific backing. Because of this, I was wondering if you could offer some insight into popular claims about black hair, such as black hair is chemically and or structurally different from the hair of other ethnicities. Black hair requires tailored products rather than products marketed towards all curly hair types. And black hair requires different regimens than hair of other ethnicities. If there is a significant difference between black hair and the hair of other ethnicities, I'm curious what types of products slash routines you'd recommend for it. Thank you so much for what you do. I'm a show-me-the-data kind of gal, so I'm delighted to have found a podcast that provides unbiased, evidence-based information on the efficacy and value of different ingredients, products, and routines for consumers. Thanks again. All right, Ashley, thanks for that question. Valerie, have you any thoughts on this topic? I know uh, you you spent a lot of years in, working in salon products and such, and yeah. uh, this, this should be right up your alley here. Yeah, and if there's one thing, I mean, there's a bunch of things Ashley is right on, uh, but one of the things is just the amount of competing information that's out there really everywhere with often what appears not to be signs of scientific backing. What's interesting about the uh, ethnic care community is there's not been a lot of research on it, so the data just really hasn't been there in the last 20 yeah. years. I think that's changed. But so the information had to really be experiential or anecdotal. Uh, but now we're moving into what I call a new era of hair research, where we're really doing a lot of work with new instrumentation to understand the diff- the true differences between uh, what's considered ethnic hair, like African hairs, uh, Caucasian hairs, Asian hairs, that kind of thing. So it's uh, taking a, a, a fresh look at something that we thought we had figured out going back to the 60s. 
All right, so let's go through these one at a time. Uh, it said black hair is chemically and or structurally different from the hair of other ethnicities. Yeah, this has been well established for a very long time. So structurally, it is very different. It has a different elliptical shape, so it's not perfectly round like Caucasian or Asian right. hair. Uh, but it has a little bit of a an oval type shape to it. And the ovalness of it is not consistent from root to tip. Uh, there is a scientist named Dr. Sayed. He's the founder of uh, the brand Uberless. He does a lot of research on African hair. And some of his work uh, says, yes, it is elliptical, but it's irregularly elliptical at that. So that can account for mm. some of the the physical differences that we see. Uh, we're taking a fresh look chemically at what hair is even composed of. And so we are finding that because of the shape, or I should say because of the chemical bonds, there's a lot of disulfide bonds in uh, curly right. and coily hair. Uh, it gives it this different uh, structural shape and physics. Additionally, a lot of the new research is showing major differences with hair lipids um, in different types of hair. And even with African hairs, there's lots of variation in the lipid content. And lipids influence hair, uh, for example, the mechanical properties, the way the hair moves and how uh, brittle it is. That can, sure. can come from lipids. Additionally, the way hair interacts with humidity uh, also is characterized by the quantity of lipids the types of lipids and where the lipids live within the hair. So it could be uh, how permeable it is to water and the tensile strength of it uh, is a big factor. Although from the protein standpoint, it's still made up of amino acids and keratin protein, uh, but there are some significant differences with the other stuff. All right, uh, another one. Black hair requires tailored products rather than products marketed towards all curly hair types. Now, this probably is not a popular opinion, but again, I, I wouldn't really say there's data backing this, so that this is just my opinion. I think that there are a lot of great products on the market that aren't necessarily tailored towards curly hair that will work on curly hair. Yeah. I don't know if there's specifically a have to have for them, but I would say not all products are created equal. So you do have to find some that do fit your uh, your hair type, because, again, even within the curly hair demographic, there's a lot of variation in that. Some people have like really tightly coiled hair. Some people have loosely curled hair. And so one product could be marketed towards that hair type, but it really not even work for that hair type. So. I would say with black hair, it really is about the routine and making sure that you're uh, taking care of the hair, making sure that it's, I call it lubricated, but basically it is prone to breakage due to the chemical and physical structure. So you want to make sure that you have a really nice uh, coating um, over the hair, whether that's in the form of an oil, a styling cream, um, a conditioning cream, making sure you're not using uh, products that increase the fragility of the hair, that kind of thing. So I don't know if that means marketed towards curly hair or just finding products that um, fit fit the routine. But I would say even with skin, uh, with hair, it really routine is really important versus uh, what product you buy. 
I will add, though, that uh, having worked on some specific brands, uh, sometimes when it says for curly hair, that is just purely a marketing thing, and there's not really a formula difference or significant formula difference. But your marketing people came to you and said, oh, we need a skew for people with curly hair, and you just take the regular product, make a, a few tweaks to it that are incidental, and say, oh, this is for curly hair. So that kind of thing still goes it on. Does, and since yeah. there's no... There's no specific definition of like what is curly hair and what specific products you need for it. it you're going to have to experiment. Just because something says it's for curly hair doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to work for curly hair. Yeah, and I think you know this aspect right here probably leads to the uh, dizzying amount of competing information uh, that right. Ashley is talking about because what works for one person doesn't work for another, right? But people... Uh, say it with such conviction, like, you know, this works, uh, and then it doesn't work for someone else. So yeah, I can yeah. see how it's uh, it's a lot, a lot, a lot. All right, well, let's say black hair requires different regimens than hair of other ethnicities. Again, I don't know if there's peer-reviewed literature on this, but what there is mm-hmm. peer-reviewed literature in saying is that you know, black hair does behave a little bit differently. It undergoes uh, swelling a little bit differently in water than Asian or Caucasian hair. It has different mechanical properties. Uh, So I think from that perspective, even structurally, it physically looks different. And, you know, we focus so much on like the biology and chemistry of hair. Yeah. You know, really here, this is physics. Like the physics of the hair fiber is just there's a lot of strain and stress uh, that happens on curly and coily hair. So from that perspective, it does need a different regimen because it is more prone to breakage. I think one of the challenges is in defining, say, black hair versus other ethnicities. It's 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 more of a, a range of hair types than it is one single, you yeah. know, one single box uh and so there, you know, it really depends on your specific hair and the way uh, your follicles are shaped uh, about whether you need, uh, you know, special products or not. Um, so, all right. Uh, I, is there a last one? Is there a significant difference between black hair and hair of other ethnicities? Uh, we already answered that. I'm curious what types of products or routines you'd recommend for it. So... I am white. I have Caucasian hair. is a little coarse. Uh, and I, I always say it's the texture of male leg hair. So just look at the <laughs> nearest male and look down and that's my hair. Uh, so I personally can't make any recommendations um, in terms of exact products or routines. Uh, you know, again, I would just say focus on uh, being gentle to your hair, making sure the hair has lubrication to it, meaning a uh, oil uh, coating on it, a very lightweight conditioner that doesn't produce drag. So something that has behentrimonium methosulfate in it, or something that has stearametopropyl dimethylamine in it uh, that can be left on the hair. Those are uh, really light, not going to weigh the hair down. um, And they'll help make the hair feel really soft. Uh, I would focus there using gentle shampoos as well to make sure you cleanse your scalp. And if you have a scalp condition, uh, make sure you're not feeding it with oils and that kind of stuff. Uh, 
consult a dermatologist for that. But yeah, I would say just be kind to your hair and uh, don't stress out about it. I know it can be very stressful finding products that work. And, you know, when you have bad hair days, you just feel kind of crummy. So, uh, you know, just be kind to yourself as you find the right product and routines and, you know, rely on the communities that are there, despite all of the information that's being produced, uh, you know, get their opinions on what's working. Yeah. Stay skeptical, but experiment, you know, and if you, if you, end up on something that works for you, then that's what you should use. Yeah, and let us know. I'd love it. Yeah. I love the feedback, I should say. All right, we got another audio question. It comes to us from Hillary. It's about sunscreens. Hi, Beauty Brains. I have a two-part question for you. You've done a lot lately on sunscreen, and I align with the guy who reapplies sunscreen every two hours, especially right before a long run. I also keep sunscreen in my car in case I forget to put it on before I leave the house or need to reapply. I live in Arizona where the inside of my car sometimes reaches 140 degrees. Is my sunscreen bad after a few months in the car reaching these temperatures periodically? I think I'm going to have one of my students do a science fair project on this with photosensitive paper. So if you have some recommendations for that, I'd love to hear both your thoughts on how long sunscreen will last in this environment and ways to test it without fancy laboratory equipment. Thanks so much. 140 degrees in their car. That's that's hot. That's pretty hot. That's uh, 60 degrees Celsius. <laughs> it is. You know, I was working on a shampoo project and uh, this shampoo was pearlized. Uh, pearlized is that it's, it's a creamy, cloudy look that you get and makes it seem like it's more moisturizing well this product uh you i left it in my car and the pearl went away it was it was just a clear shampoo because it got so hot uh, i think we were using glycerol stearate or uh, glycerol monosterate as the uh, pearlizing agent and if it gets too hot it just goes away and so that is just to demonstrate that there are formula changes that happen to products when they're stored at high temperatures like that but does it break it down? Yeah, that's a great question. So typically when we do stability testing, the max temperature I test in is 50 degrees Celsius, which is way less hot than 60 degrees Celsius, which is 140 degrees. Um, we went up to 54 degrees Celsius. I, wow. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why we went that high, but that's what we did. Well, we didn't go that high because we didn't want stuff to fail. But anyway, 50 sure. degrees is pretty <laughs> stressful. So if you could get a product to survive 50 degrees Celsius for two weeks, you were golden. But uh, sometimes things do happen because it is warm and 60 degrees Celsius, 140 degrees Fahrenheit is flat out hot. And in just thinking about how a product is made, sunscreens are typically emulsions. Emulsions are made of fatty alcohols, waxes, emulsifiers right. that at room temperature are solid, but you have to heat them up combine those with your sunscreen filters and your oils and cool it back down. A lot of these fatty alcohols and waxes don't even recrystallize until they reach like 54, 52, 55 degrees Celsius. So if you're heating something up to 60 degrees Celsius, I could imagine some of these solids are starting to melt. Yeah, like uh, the melting point of acetyl alcohol is 60 degrees C. 
sterile alcohol i think is like 64 but yeah if you're getting to the melting point of your co-emulsifiers those aren't emulsifiers themselves but they're the solidifying ingredients um that's gonna that could wreak havoc on your emulsion structure for sure and when that happens that could wreak havoc on the delivery of the spf values that you're getting you're not going to get that uh that more consistent film that you would be getting if you didn't store it at such high temperatures. So I could see that uh, storing it at that temperature for extended periods of time could really uh, mess up with the SPF values. Exactly. One cool thing that you could do, Hillary, in addition to having one of your students do this science fair project on photosensitive paper, is get a little um, uh, ultraviolet camera. You can get those and you can see where you've actually applied the sunscreen on skin because the UV filters will interact with the, the camera and what it's photographing. And so if you have this uneven film or any really disturbance on the application side, it'll definitely show up in this photography. Yeah. Yeah, you might have to trick up the uh, how how you store the product and to get it to exaggerate uh differences, but you could certainly show it up with a, a, a camera like you're suggesting. Yeah. So what do, what do we, what should she do? Not keep it in her car? Yeah. Don't keep it in your car. <laughs> yeah. You know what you should do? Keep it in your golf bag. It just stays in there forever. And it, and, it and your works. golf bag is only outside for a couple hours. It stays in your house right, the rest of the time, hours. right? Temperature controlled. Yeah. I think in general, it's a good idea not to leave stuff in your car, your, your personal care products in your car even though it is kind of convenient. But if you have like a little refrigerator, maybe you can leave it in there. But cars get, there's no temperature control in there and you're stressing your products and it's just going to lead to instability and the product's not going to work as well. In addition to the SPF sort of getting messed up, the the fragrance could get messed the up when you're storing it that decompose. high. preservative could decompose. Preservative could de. yeah. So, it, yeah, you're definitely stressing it out and uh, it, it could lead to instability and not working as well. Yeah. Keep it in your purse and bring your purse inside. (laughs) That's right. Don't leave your purse in your car. All right. I think we got time for one more question. This fully packed one. This one comes to us from somebody saying that they're ambitious living. Ambitious living. Does lamellar technology, as found in the Wonder Water, work for hair? Yeah, it really uh, does. That's yeah. one of the no- annoying things about it. That's right. That's right. You love that product, don't you? Well, you know, I used it because I heard so much about it. And, you know, I'd like to give stuff a try. Sure, sure. Well, I I think when it first came out, you were you were crowing about it. Yeah, because it, it really does make the hair feel great. Uh, lamellar technology, you know, someone in marketing probably asked a chemist, hey, can you tell me why this conditioner works so well? And they were like, well, it's a right. lamellar emulsion. And boom, sure. they took that and ran with it, right? Lamellar. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like something. So lamellar. It's not new. It's, te- it's surfactants. So it's <laughs> yeah. just a different way to say surfactants. So yeah. lamellar technology isn't uh, something that L'Oreal invented. It's an emulsion technology where the product, uh, when the water and oil come together with the emulsifier, it cre- creates this lamellar structure, like these flat sheets that can deliver actives into hair. This is a, a big technology in hair care. 
And what, mm-hmm. what's great about it is you can really deliver conditioning and other goodies uh, into the hair fiber through a lamellar style emulsion. What's cool about the Wonder Water is it uses lamellar technology, but it's not a thick cream. It's like a viscous solution. That's what I think is really cool about the Wonder Water. And so when you use it, you get this uh, swelling of the hair. It has a lot of solvent in it. You get the conditioning aspect Uh, And then it feels so good when it's rinsing and you're like, wow, but I feel like there's 3% fragrance in there or something. It's too fragrant for me. And for that reason, I don't like it. Well, they got, they start as propylene glycol. So no, no water really in, oh, there's water in it, but it's more propylene glycol than water. Uh, And they have alcohol in it. So it's going to evaporate off. Maristal alcohol, Mm -hmm. that's sort of like cetyl alcohol. So that's your solid-ish thing. But super low low chain, so you're not going to get a lot of viscosity or stiffness or structure out of it. Right. And then they get the citrimonium chloride and the behine trimonium chloride. That's going to form the lamellar structure. Right. And those would be also the 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 Wonder Water rinse out stuff. You don't want to leave that in your no, hair for you too long. No, you do not. Mm-mm. Um, and then uh, solvents and fragrance. That's pretty much it. So. And it's patent protected, so. Patent protected. So uh, people rave about it. I know my wife loved this stuff. Yeah. Your hair does real feel really soft afterwards, thanks to the behind trimonium chloride. That's a really good dry feel conditioner. Hair feels really good. When Transforms the hair in eight eight seconds. <laughs> you know, one time. Why, why does it take? <laughs> someone in marketing said that to me. They're like, "How does it work in eight seconds?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah. it could work in ten. It could." Just like something they <laughs> yeah. said, right? It, it it takes you because it takes you seven seconds to apply it, and it works in the eighth second. I, it's pretty I clever, huh? That's just yeah, yeah, it's clever. You know, the number eight is infinity sideways. Think about it. <laughs> it works for infinity <laughs> up to the sky. Hey, what's that music? Oh my gosh, that's telling us we have to go. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you get a chance, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Speaking of questions, if you have one, we love to hear your voice on the show. So just record it on your smartphone and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Or Perry has to use that really terrible AI stuff. So bad. <laughs> I will. Hey, they have like, a, I think they have a, a South African voice now. Too. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait. No, it wouldn't. Don't go. do it. <laughs> hey, the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show and keep us ad free, go to patreon.com slash the Beauty Brains and subscribe. Also, you get access to a transcript of the show so you can easily look through it and search it and, and read instead of having to listen to us. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts on Instagram. We're at the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains. We have a Facebook page and a TikTok. Is it still called Twitter or X? Or I don't know what it's called. I had to delete it from my phone. I was like, what app is this? <laughs> I know. It looks scary. <laughs> it is. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>